to your point, it's funny that you say that because I'm sure that there are people who who attended the relationship-based leadership session yesterday and will spend 15 minutes on the phone. You know, they'll be inspired to now be proactive and they'll spend 15 minutes on the phone with one of their division leaders or leadership staff members at their respective programs. And then in the summertime, they'll, uh, they'll believe that that 15 minutes would then allow them to have a difficult conversation that, that it doesn't, it doesn't connect like that. That's not the point. There's no, there's no short-term solution for a, for a long-term process. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. This is a show where I have coffee and conversation with some of the best leaders in the world and we talk about culture and connection. Today's episode is a cool one for me for many reasons. One of them being it was the last in-person episode I recorded before moving to virtual due to the pandemic. For this episode, I sat down with my former boss and summer camp director, Dave Skolnick, at the American Camp Association Conference in Atlantic City. It was my first time speaking at the conference. I was super excited to be there and super excited to see Dave and many others from my camp days. And I remember COVID-19 was a thing everyone was talking about. There was concern the conference would get canceled. There was hand sanitizer all over the place. They were asking people not to hug, not to handshake. Literally, you know, elbow bump was, was, the, was the thing at the time. And, and yet the, the conference still happened, though, and we still got together. And there was, I think Dave says on this interview, 3,000 people at this conference and this was on a Thursday and the very next day was Black Tuesday for me. It was that Friday I talked to almost every client or event planner or coach I had planned an event training uh, speaking engagement workshop with in 2020 and every single one of them was either canceled at that point or postponed at that point soon to be canceled. I remember there were some events that I had scheduled for that May where folks were saying you know what let's be proactive and just cancel or postpone them until September and we'll do it in September. And at that time, I remember thinking like, yeah, you know what, if I can just make it through this spring and this summer, we'll just, we'll, we'll take care of it. It'll be a busy fall, but, but, you know, let's just be safe and prudent at this time. Little did we know, well, I guess some people knew, but, but, uh, or understood at that time how long this would last. But, but now we know we're here. It's almost six or seven months later and we're all doing our thing. I've been rocking this podcast on virtual interviews and, and we're rocking my, my speaking engagements and, and workshops, uh, virtually and, and, or if, uh, the couple that I've had in person have been outside socially distanced with masks on. So obviously the world we are today is, is far different from, from where we were when Dave and I sat down for this interview, literally the Thursday before the Friday that everything went down. And I don't know what your world has been like with this pandemic. When I talk to people about that particular day, that particular day tends to, to ring true for a lot of people. It was actually, I remember uh, I got dinner with, with a group of people at that conference and we were getting updates on our phone where a lot of us are lacrosse people getting updates on our phones that the Ivy League had canceled the spring lacrosse season. And we thought my first reaction is, wow, that's going to rock the season because at the time the Ivy League was doing really well. I think Princeton was in the top 10 for the first time in a long time. And, and Yale has been a consistent player and Cornell was looking at come back. So, you know, we were still thinking of this in terms of the season would happen. And so it's just a little, little trip down memory lane from six or seven months ago. That feels like six or seven years ago. And that's where Dave and I were when we sat down to have this conversation. 
So again, I just, I like to make that clear because yes, we are in person having this conversation. My audio isn't me or Dave on a virtual computer connection that sounds like we're in a tin can. It's good quality audio on a microphone. And we did this, I, I should say, uh, uh, while it was still safe to do, but it probably wasn't at that time. We've since learned to do it virtually. I would like to make a note on that. All my my interviews that I'm releasing through the end of the year are previously recorded. I am not doing any new interviews at this point. New interviews I do will be on season two of this podcast. And yes, uh, for those of you that that are, are are listening and are fans, I appreciate you. And I, I am getting a professional. I, I have for the most part already, but I'm getting a professional mic set up for my virtual conversation so that the quality can match what we do in person for as long as we need and should do them virtually. Other than that, the last thing I want to say is, yes, at this time, we didn't know anything about the pandemic. And at this time, Steve Nash was not the head coach of the Brooklyn Nuts. If you're wondering why I'm making that point, it'll make more sense. and It'll be more relevant when you hear Dave's 50 cups of coffee story. But before you hear that, let me introduce you to Dave. Dave Skolnick has been a part of the TLC family of camps for close to 30 years, starting as a camper at Timberlake. Today, Dave is a director at Hampton Country Day Camp in East Hampton, New York, which is where I met Dave first as a counselor and then as the Sports and Spirit Day Coordinator for HCDC. In addition to his duties at HCDC, Dave is the COO of the TLC family of camps. This is an organization that features three of the most respected resident summer camps in the Northeast, three of the premier day camps on Long Island, and a top-tier preschool. On top of all that, Dave is also the founder and director of a popular youth athletic development program called FAST, which stands for Fitness and Athletic Skills Training. FAST provides age-specific programs for multi-sport skill instruction, motor skill development, and performance training. Due to Dave's wide diversity of experiences on this episode, we talk about how Dave manages an organizational culture of diverse ages, roles, and experiences in the high-energy, fast-paced environment that is summer camp. I think managing a summer camp is the true test of your ability to manage people and processes while maintaining a tremendous positive attitude. Positive attitude is not just a nicety in summer camp, it is, it is a requirement of the job on top of managing a staff that ranges from high school age kids to, to adults in their 50s, 60s, if not older, that are still involved in the, in the camp career. On top of that, you're, you're managing all these kids that are coming in and out from, from two years old to 12 in Dave's case every single day and their parents and, and all that goes into that. Uh, so I, genuinely managing a summer camp, I believe is, is one of the truest tests of management. And, and we get it. We have a great conversation about that on this episode. We talk about relationship-based leadership, a topic Dave presented on at the ACA conference. And toward the 50-minute mark, we get into Dave's work with FAST and long-term athlete development, a culture of sport development I'm a big proponent of. I've talked about on this podcast. I've had guests who specifically focus on that on this podcast. And so it's kind of in season one, been, been just, you know, LTAD has, has made its way into this podcast, which is about culture and connection. And, and to me, it makes sense. I hope if you're a regular listener of the show, it's starting to make sense to you. I hope if you're a coach or an athlete or a parent of kids who play sports in any 
way that, that you've seen why I promote this so much and why it's important to me when I talk about culture and connection. And I hope if you're a manager of a team or a leader of a team that has nothing to do with athletics, maybe you've learned a little bit from the conversations we have about LTAD and how it's holistic approach to, to, to human development maybe has influenced you in a little bit too. So at the 50 minute mark, we get into LTAD, uh, kind of a, 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 a divergence from the pure culture connection conversation. And I think extremely, extremely relevant. Dave is a mentor to me. He has been for 10 years. I loved using this podcast as an excuse to pick his brain for an hour and, and learn some things about his story that I never knew. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Please enjoy my cup of coffee with Dave Skolnick. So I'm the director, or one of the directors, I should say, of Hampton Country Day Camp out in East Hampton. I've been doing that for the past 10 years. And um, I've also taken on a bit of a, a management role within the organization. So I'm the chief operating officer and oversee a lot of the business development for the family of camps. And and you, I remember as a, so I worked for you as a counselor at Hampton Country Day Camp. And I remember you telling a story about your experience with camp as a kid. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you tell, still tell, there was something about... Uh, like riding the bus or something like that, like as a little kid showing up to camp and that made an impression on us in terms of just like how much the counselors matter and the, and how you got involved in camp. Cause you've been a camper since you were how, how old? Sure. So, so I grew up going to camp in Long Island. Camping, uh, yeah. is, is a big thing. I grew up going to, um, a lot of the local camps and then kind of transitioned into quite a few sports camps. So as it relates to like a, a starting age for sleepaway camp, um, I was a bit late to the game, believe it or not. I started when I was going into sixth grade. Okay. Um, Which is late to the game in the world of sleepaway Sleepaway, yeah. Now yeah. it's actually creeping younger and younger, believe wow. it or not. And you got kids, uh, you know, going into second grade that, that, that are... How that long are, are they? Is it a whole summer there at sleepaway? Yeah, sure. So it depends. So so uh, two of our sleepaway camps are full season camps, and, and it's closer to seven weeks now. When I was growing up, it was uh, closer to eight weeks and one of the one of the camps, Timberlake West, is we call it a short season program. So they have two four week options and a and a two week option in August. But I always go, I always went to the full season program called uh, Timberlake, and um, you know I I like so many you know kids my age growing up. Um, you know I don't think you really appreciate the the the, the gift of camp when you're that age. You kind of just live it. And, um, you know, when you do have some time to kind of reflect on the opportunity that, that, that I had that a lot of other kids don't, um, you start to realize how lucky you are. So going back to your question, just in terms of, you know, your, your love for camp or my love for camp, um, you know, referencing the bus, I don't exactly remember the, the, the story yeah. I told, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it is something that, that was very important that I did love and look forward to year in and year out. It was something that I never dreamed that I would actually pursue as a, as a profession. How'd you actually. get into it as a profession? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting story. So um, I, I went to Cornell, uh, studied applied economics and management. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, pursuing a career in, in, in the summer camp world was never something that, that you're taking <laughs> classes in, you know, over the four years. And I actually um, got a job working for a company called Aramark. They're a, they're a really big food and uniform distribution company. Oh, okay, yeah, I've heard of them. Um, and did a ton of on-campus recruiting, and I actually landed this job, um, I think it was October 
my uh, my senior year. So I was smooth sailing. I was coasting my entire senior year. And um, I got a call from the regional manager. It was for an executive management training program where they took, I think it was 20 to 25 graduating students. They put them through a year or two of, uh, of rotations in the hopes that they could then put them into some type of management role, um, depending on the region. I got a call two weeks before graduation, so this is now um, early May 2005, that the executive committee had done a little bit of a reevaluation of the success of some of the candidates that came out of the management program. And they said, Dave, we cannot believe that, that we're kind of telling you this, we're giving you the, this news, but um, we've decided to internally cut this program. So the contract that we offered, we can no longer honor that. And, uh, you know, we wish you, of course, the best of luck. Wow. So, yeah, so here I am two weeks before graduating from college. So you had this, you said it was in the beginning. So the whole year you think you have this job and two weeks before graduation, job is just cut. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and it was, and it was interesting the entire year. You know, of course, Cornell, a lot of my, a lot of my friends were, were going off to the world of finance or they were going to law school or medical school. And, you know, all along I kind of had my idea. I always wanted to be in management or operational management, something like that. I, I, I knew um, pretty early on that I didn't want to pursue, you know, the life of Wall Street or anything like that. But um, I never dreamed that, you know, at, at uh, you know, in, in early May, you know, my kind of, uh, my, my planned world that seems so easy going in uh, was going to be turned upside down. And this is where a little bit of that butterfly effect comes in and everything happens for a reason. Um, I was supposed to be living in New York City with one of my best friends who um, I called pretty quickly and said, hey, listen, man, I no longer have this job that, uh, that I was supposed to have, believe it or not. So, you know, I, I, I can't promise that I'm going to be in a position where I'll be able to split rent with you. And nevertheless, it's just not something that, that I can commit to. I have no idea where I'm going to be. And, uh, you know, as it would happen, his mom had been a longtime employee of the TLC family of camps in the accounting department. And over lunch one day, just speaking to a lot of the other people, I said, hey, remember uh, Dave Skolnick? He used to go to Timberlake. He worked for a while. Can you believe this is what happened two weeks before graduation? So she tells the story. And uh, our executive director, actually the director of the camp that uh, I grew up at, Timberlake Camp, um, something must have went off in his, in his mind, said, you know what, uh, can you give me his number? I'm actually looking for a young guy um, in the organization. We have a lot of these new projects going on. Uh, it seems like maybe, you know, he, he might be a good fit. So I remember getting a voicemail. His name's uh, Jay Jacobs, great guy, um, still to this day, executive director of the organization and, uh, and one of my mentors get a voicemail from him, hey, Dave, heard what happened. Can you come into the organization, you know, after, uh, after you graduate, introduce you to a few people, we'll obviously go through the interview process, and if it's the right fit, you know, you can pursue it. So the summer after graduating from, from college, where, you know, friends are either traveling or lining up plans for, you know, whatever job that they're pursuing, I'm, I'm back in summer camp. And uh, it was something that, that I think, from a from a, an ego perspective, yeah. it, it, it took a couple of uh, a couple of weeks to um, to kind of swallow. But uh, but I quickly learned that that camp was a lot more than just fun and games. What were you doing? So when you say you were back in summer camp, you know, and the ego takes a hit, what was your job that summer? Yeah, going right back at it. Yeah, and great question. So the, so the interesting thing is, I, I I didn't have a job. Yeah. So. You know, Jay had uh, had offered me the position to work full time for for Timberlake in June, 
And by June, you know, <clears throat> essentially all positions have been accounted for sure. and everybody's hired. So I kind of came in without a, you know, without a defined role. And he basically said, hey, listen, this is a long-term plan. Spend the summer kind of shadowing me, shadowing different um, leadership staff at Timberlake, whether it was the operations director or the program director, um, and just kind of really spend the summer soaking up the operation and learning as much as you can. And it, and it, and it proved to be um, you know, a really great thing because I loved the back end of running a camp. I mean, there, there's, of course, the you know, on stage, there's the show, and there's the schedule, and there's the program, and the games, and the activities, and the sports, and all that. Um, but that doesn't happen by accident. It mm-hmm. takes a ton of pre-planning, a ton of coordination, um, a lot of logistics, and and you know as it would happen, that was a lot of the things, or those were a lot of the things that I was going to end up um, taking on at Aramark. So mm-hmm. a lot of that logistical management stuff transitioned just naturally into some of the things that that um, was going on at camp, at least yeah. that I saw. So. Yeah, and how? So you your camp? So you were your first job was done at Timberlake. Mm-hmm. How many counselors? How many campers are at that camp? Sure. So Timberlake has uh, has close to 500 campers. Yeah. And uh, and about 250 staff. Okay. So and what and you're now at Hampton Country Day. When did you become director? So you did you go from Timberlake to HCDC? Yep, that's exactly right. So uh, when I first interviewed with Jay in 2005, he actually showed me uh, a land survey of a piece of property in East Hampton that he had um, that he had just been shown by a broker. And he had been thinking about this idea of putting a day camp out on the east end of Long Island. Um, and he said, hey, listen, one of the things that, you know, if, if this works out and you decide um, that this is the right place for you, and, and, and we, of course, just think that this is the right place for you also, this would be one of the projects that, that you know, you'll be working on. Uh, I'm, I'm very close to finalizing a deal to buy a tennis club in East Hampton, and then we would have to change it permit-wise to be a day camp. Um, and so from, from 2005, when I started to work through 2009, it was a four year permit process, a full site plan process that I actually had the opportunity to coordinate. And so working with, um, landscape architects to engineers, to the town, uh, builders. So I got some great experience working on, on the actual, you know, building a camp, you know, from the ground up and the opportunity came in 2010 um, that there was a leadership change at Hampton Country Day Camp. And, um, and I kind of threw my hat in, uh, in the ring. I said, hey, uh, you know, I think at this point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm So you, I'm you ready. threw your hat in that ring. Yeah. No one asked you to do that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that How was, was that internal? Like, was it, there's, a, there's a confidence to doing that, especially internally. Um, were you a natural fit, or was that a bold move to throw your hat in that ring? I think it was a bold move just based on my my age. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time I was 26 and, uh, you know, running a camp is a, is, it's a, it's a multi-million dollar yeah. operation. And of course at 26, you always think, you know, a heck of a lot more than you do. Did you know um, it was a bold move at the time or were you, were you that confident or did you think, you know what, I, I, I want this position. I want people to know I want it. Even if I don't get it, at least I've, I've gone through that process. Or were you just, a confident 26-year-old who was like, no, I'm a good fit for this job. Sure. Um, I, I think, honestly, it was probably a little bit of a mix. Yeah. That, that's that's my honest opinion. Um, I probably had a little bit too much moxie as a 26-year-old. Um, but I also knew that within the framework of the organization, there were so many people that I could lean on and learn mm-hmm. from. 
Um, and one of those people was the director at the time of, of North Shore Day Camp, one of the camps within the organization, um, an amazing leader and, and, uh, and mentor named Paula Rothman. And, and similar to the book, and but completely different circumstances of Tuesdays with Maury. I used to have Tuesdays with Paula <laughs> because it had been close to 20 years since I had attended a day camp, nevertheless mm-hmm. worked at a day camp. I had always gone to sleepaway camp and worked at sleepaway camp, and it's just a different beast of an operation. And every Tuesday, really, for the better part of, uh, of the off-season, I would meet with Paula, and every Tuesday had a different topic, and whether it was transportation or enrollment or program development or staff management, um, she, was, she was integral into learning you know, what, what I could expect on, on day one. Um, I, I was also teamed with, had the opportunity to, to work very closely um, with a co-director, Doris Rosen, who, who, who was awesome and still to this day is awesome. She brings a wealth of experience um, working with families and has a ton of um, amazing experience working with young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, of course, Jane Olshiver is our associate director. And she was, she was really one of, of three staff members or four staff members, really key leadership staff members, the only full-time staff member, though, that transitioned from the, the old leadership at, of Hampton Country Day Camp to now, um, you know, working with Doris and and um, and me, and so Jane, we call her the glue, and mm-hmm. I think that's just a learning lesson. I mean, there's so many important people that make things happen, especially when you have you know 500 kids and 250 staff, like was at Timberlake. Um, the numbers are are a bit lower at Hampton Country, but um, but to know that you can lean on so many talented people. Um, and not have to worry about ever doing it, you know, yourself. I think that was a very quick learning lesson in, in, uh, in, in you know, possibly empowerment and delegation and, yeah. and shared responsibility. Yeah. And what I love, you know, a big part of our work in this podcast is focused on, you've mentioned the back end side of camp. And so I don't, you know, I'm sure that we'll get some listeners to this particular episode that, that are, are camp professionals and, and can relate to the logistics of it. And the majority of the listeners are people that run teams, whether it's athletic, run organizations, businesses. And when we, we talk about building effective cultures, we talk about keeping your energy up, we talk about uh, positivity. And I always think back to my camp days because, you know, just, just the summer, like, yes, you have a full-time job the back end throughout the year. But even just the summer, you, Jane and Doris, are running this this company, this organization of of employees that range from you know adults into their 30s and 40s, maybe 50s, to employees that are 18, 19, 20 years old. You're managing kids that are what two years old to what 10 or 12 or yep, up to 12 these yeah. days. Yeah, and it is it is just from the outside looking in, so much going on all at once. And the three of you, plus other staff members, Justin and many other people, mm-hmm. running this thing. But what have you... So you've been doing this since, what, 2010 is when you took over? Yeah, this at, will be the 11th summer at, so at Hampton Country. What is... You don't have to have a clean answer for this, mm-hmm. but what have you learned about managing a culture like that? What have you learned about managing the summer? If those fall off, you can let them fall off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you figured out the distance yeah. of the mic. Yeah. Um, um, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a big question. It's a, it's a kind of not direct question, but it really is saying when, when, you know, you think about your job as the leader of this organization, specifically with the counselors, um, what have you learned about creating culture and then keeping it alive over the course of an entire summer, because I think that is the 
extreme of any organization trying to maintain this with the hours that you guys put in in summer camp. Yeah, with, without a doubt. I'll, I'll tell you, the, the one thing um, more than anything that, that I think I've realized about culture is that it's intentional. Mm. And the culture that happens by accident, I think a lot of times falls into being the wrong culture because um, it might be uh, unintentional because it's not something that you specifically did from the top. But a culture will will develop, and if it's not you or your team or your leadership team um, figuring out and defining what that is, then I think a lot of times the culture will be defined by perhaps the wrong set of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the one thing, and that and and in everything we do, from the preseason communication with our staff to the way we structure staff orientation to the ongoing training throughout the summer, everything that we do. Um, is from the approach of needs to be positive. It needs to be contagiously positive. Um, from a leadership team, we need to come out with a very united front. And, um, and from a leadership standpoint, um, I think we need to show that we are more than willing to, um, to get our hands dirty as much and probably more so than, um, than any other person at camp. There, there's a great there's a great book um, about the New Zealand All Blacks rugby mm-hmm. team. Um, I think it's called Sweep, Sweep the Sheds, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and it essentially talks about the importance of the leaders, the coaches, the, the, the general managers of, of, of you know, the All Blacks. At the end of every game, they're in there taking care of the sheds, the locker rooms that the All Black players, there's tons of tape and um, garbage, whatever it is, but they leave it pristinely clean and it's not just the maintenance team of the all blacks that takes care of it everybody takes pride in that and so um you know just from a culture standpoint i think everybody uh when they know it's all hands on deck and it actually looks and feels and seems like it's not just a motto all hands on deck that means all hands on deck besides the leadership team i think that creates a culture that that uh you know we're all in this together um, and as cliche as it, as it sounds, um, you know, we're, we're all willing to work towards the same goal and, and put as much effort, if not more, mm-hmm. um, to make that done. Yeah. And I remember seeing that, um, you know, I can't remember it's been, it's been 10 years, so I can't remember specifics, but as I was preparing for this podcast, I'm glad you brought up that reality because you guys definitely did embody that sense of, uh, if something needs to get done. I remember walking into the cafeteria and you or Doris or Jane would be cleaning the tables and flipping the room for the next, you know, group to come in. I remember not fully. So my second year, running, you know, working with sports and spirit day and stuff. I, I got more insight into the back end than as a counselor. And that's when I realized what Jane in particular did and saw that she had an office. Mm-hmm. And cause from my perspective, I saw her sweeping the sheds, cleaning up the, the kitchen, uh, taking care of a, a, a kid who maybe had an injury and needs to be taken somewhere. And instead of bothering a counselor or, or somebody else, it's like Jane will take care of it or anybody. And, and the fact that we as counselors, probably didn't even know how high a parole was, I think is really cool because it's just that sense of this is just a group of individuals here to get the job done. You can't, from the outside looking in, you don't see the hierarchy. It's just here to get the job done. Is that, that reality, is that something, I've asked this question before on the podcast, is that something you hire for or is that something you train for? And maybe it's a little of both, but is there a way to hire for that when you guys go through 
Because I remember when I was hired, it was a pretty, I'd say, extensive from a place of getting to know the individual type of interview process. So talk about your interview process, looking for individuals that are a good fit to work at the camp. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that is the key to, I think, any, any successful camp. Uh, you know, we talk about it in orientation, actually, that Hampton Country could, could run on an open field in the middle of nowhere. We happen to have gorgeous facilities, um, you know, and, and, and as it relates to a day camp environment, you know, truly state of the art with amazing high ropes courses and low ropes courses and great basketball courts and pools. We have all that stuff, but it's all for naught um, if you don't have the right staff. Mm-hmm. And so if you do have the right team and you figure out a way to put that together year in and year out, you can run camp just as well on, on an open field. Um, and I strongly believe that. So to your point, the hiring process is, is integral. So what we do, I think, is we look for a certain personality um, and a certain work ethic. And I use the word positivity before because I do think um, it's really important um, that a person's, and I know you, you speak to it, a- energy, and, and energy doesn't need to be high energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different ways to effectively um, you know, cultivate uh, a, a team's energy. But I do think at, at, at camp, because it, it, it does involve so many people working so closely together in a pretty high-paced environment in a short amount of time, that positive energy and the, the, the commitment to making sure that we stay positive um, is, is one of our number one goals. And it's a heck of a lot easier to do when, when you hire a team that comes to camp with that energy already there. So, um, you know, you figure that out by asking, I think, really tough questions about resilience and finding out a situation that perhaps somebody was in that didn't go as planned. And how did they react? What was their role? Um, I think you find that out by asking, you know, kind of, kind of weird questions that sometimes people don't get asked about, you know, how would your friends describe you? Um, you know, that, that allows them to kind of take a step back. And if you get an answer, um, you know, that, uh, oh, my friends would say I'm, I'm anxious or I, I, I get... Uh, do people say that in an interview process? They yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think it's a question that, that kind of throws them off a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes think if I was asked that question, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly know what to say. And perhaps... You know, I say something that that might be a yeah. Uh, I guess a you're thrown flag. by you didn't prepare for this question, so you are giving an honest answer. Exactly. Yeah. And we we ask a funny question at the end. It's something that that we've been doing for years. We ask a question: If you could have dinner with any three people, past or present, who would they be and why? And believe it or not, um, you know, we take notes on on all the interviews, and I'll look back year to year at the end of every summer to see and remind myself who different people at camp said. And uh, I'll tell you what, a lot of times, and this is no offense to, to Justin Bieber, but a lot of the times the staff that will say people like, you know, Justin Bieber um, and, uh, or, or, or perhaps, um, you know, uh, an Instagram celebrity, right, let's say, right, right. are a heck of a lot different in terms of how effective they were working with kids than somebody um, who, you know, cliche as it sounds, says, you know, Mother Teresa right. or, um, you know, a really powerful presidential figure, Barack Obama. Um, and that's just a, it's a question that, that nobody thinks too much into. But the people who have the ability to kind of take a step back and, and kind of get in touch with, you know, what they truly feel like would be a great, if they had the opportunity, a great dinner. Um, believe it or not, that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty linear marker of, of 
who ends up being a great counselor yeah. and who you could, oh, that makes sense. Uh, you know, they, they invited Batman to dinner. Yeah, you know? well, I think yeah. it's funny. I'm glad because I was going to ask why that question. And then when you said, you know, those who asked Justin Bieber versus Mother Teresa. And like you said, it's nothing against Bieber. It's nothing against that individual who right. said that. But if you're looking for a counselor, part of positivity is, and one of my past guests, Christine Trippi, says being positive is maturity, is confidence. And so that does show a sign of maturity. If you're saying, who would you sit down with someone for dinner? And it's in an interview. So so you want your answer to be good. And so if someone says Justin Bieber, not that they're bad, not that you don't hire them just because of that, but it's a a lens into this young person's maturity and what they're exposed to, what they're reading, what they're paying attention to. I've become amazed how much... I was just doing a session a couple weeks ago with a group of coaches, and I put the Maya Angelou quote on the board like I did today, People will forget what you said. They'll forget what you did. They'll never forget how you made them feel. And one of the coaches, who's a great coach, had never heard that quote before. And I was surprised by that. And I shouldn't be because people are only exposed to what they're exposed to. And so if someone, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, says Maya Angelou, it's like, okay, that's a lens into how they think about the world, what they value, what they what they are reading, what they're paying attention to. So that's I I, I think that's really cool. And that's a, a neat way to to understand kind of what they value. Do you have your three? Do you have who would you sit down with? You're, you're, all right, here we go. All right, so I've been asking the question for ten years. I can't swear <laughs> that I've ever. Answer? Yeah, I'll 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 give you my I'll give you my three. Um, one one is would have living, to be, or is it living or dead, or does it matter, or do you just say three people? So three people, pa- past or present. Okay, past or present. So the the first one, um, I think would would be uh, President Obama. Yeah. Um, just just uh, for everything that that I think he he stood for, even leading up to um, him getting elected, and and how he held himself in office. Um, throughout and, and um, you know, just policies aside, I think as, 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 a, as a person and as a leader, I think I could just learn so much from being able to be at a, at a dinner table and, and kind of picking his brain. Um, I think another person that, um, you know, that, that, that would be great um, would be somebody like, and, I, and I'm, believe it or not, I'm, I'm actually, I grew up a, a, a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. So it's probably surprising that uh, I would say somebody like Coach K. Yeah. But Coach Coach K is is somebody, and I uh, one of my favorite books, um, Le- Leading from the Heart, mm-hmm. and um, everything that I think he's done to to build the Duke program, and 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 similar to to President Obama, everything that I think he stands for, um, and his ability on a uh, on a more nuclear level to develop a team and um, and a family. And be able to do that in in a forum that that I that personally I'm just very connected to you know basketball and sports. Um, he would be somebody that that I would definitely be uh, be interested to, to to kind of find out. And then um, you know last one I I think and and um, you know hopefully this doesn't sound too corny but I would probably say my grandfather. Mm. And just because I, he he passed away when I was a teenager and I think. Um, you know, just an awesome guy that that I didn't get a chance to speak to uh, as an adult, and and kind of pick his brain. He was he was a pretty amazing guy and lived through some tough times and and built a family and um, you know kind of brought himself from um, the proverbial lower class to to kind of raising you know my dad and and his family into the you know the middle class and was entrepreneurial and super funny guy. And I just think 
besides the fact that he would definitely crack some some great jokes <laughs> at the dinner table, I think having the opportunity to just kind of sit down with him, um, adult to adult, something that, that that I did not have the chance to have. Yeah, you're hired. That was good. Those there you are go. good. You like that? All right. <laughs> good answers. Yeah, I mean, uh, Bieber could be singing in the background <laughs> if he wants to. But it'd be I don't interesting think, at that table. I don't think he would have a have, no, a, have a plate. So. No, no. Um, so one thing I want to get into. This reminded me of it. Uh, yesterday, I attended the panel that you. So we're at the ACA conference. I don't think we've said that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, tell us what the ACA conference says. Sure. So the ACA stands for the American Camp Association. Okay. Um, we're at a conference right now with about three thousand attendees in in uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey. And it's essentially a professional development conference that, that for three days, everybody comes down. And um, there are a series of, of workshops that uh, span a variety of things, whether it's leadership training, um, to program development, to crisis management. And um, and it's a, it's a great community. It's a, you know, you want to talk about positive people. It's just a positive uh, group of people who are all working together to put together, I'm sorry, to put forth just a, a much better product in their own respective programs. Yeah. The, so I obviously know you and a number of folks from TLC camps here. And um, I also know a, uh, a sports program, sports camp program down in Baltimore that's here. And so they are, they are the minority. There's other sports camps focused here, but a lot of them are the overnight sleep away or day camps, you know, just summer camp experience. And so you mentioned positive. I said to them, I this is their first year coming. And I said, is this, has it been worth it for you? Like, are you guys getting enough out of these sessions that aren't directly, directly related to what you do? And they, all of them are like, no, it's awesome. We're getting a ton of information and they all go, and everyone is so positive (laughs) as if it was like weird or not weird, but like uncomfortable, different, I should say. And, and, uh, so they loved that kind of reality of it. So you're hundred percent right. It's an awesome group of people. The, panel that you led yesterday, which had uh, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Doctor now Steve Mazza, right. um, which was focused on, re- was it relationship-based leadership? And and kind of that concept of, Steve does a much better job explaining it than I'm about to do, but but the reality of your, the, the, your leadership is connecting with other individuals, is being, you're, you're helping them grow and develop, and maybe that means that they move on to another opportunity after the one summer with you. Maybe it means they stay in the same way that you came back to your camp experience. Um, maybe it means it makes being a disciplinarian harder. Uh, maybe it means you're, what I thought about is you're doing these, these sitting down and saying, who are the three people? And you go back and remember some of them and bring that conversation up again with an individual. So you've kind of, yesterday the panel was kind of the logistics of relationship-based leadership. But as you were as you were facilitating it, it hit me. I've heard that term before, reading it in a book. And I don't know why it took that panel for it to be the first time it hit me that that is how you, you all lead at Hampton Country Day Camp. Um, so how is that kind of style of leadership? Was that natural for you? Is that just the way TLC runs our organization, um, and is that part of that question and part of just how you show up for other people? Talk a little bit about relationship-based leadership and how that influences what you do. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I think relationship-based leadership can really be summed up um, in in a quote, and, and um, I, I hate to quote historical figures. It's, it's sometimes a bit a bit cliche, but but I do think it's pretty appropriate. So Teddy Roosevelt said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
I quote that all the time. So okay, that is great. A good quote. I will accept. One of my favorite quotes and essentially yeah. encapsulates everything that relationship-based leadership um, means. And the idea really is to invest so much time in the team that you manage that not only are they willing to kind of proverbially run through walls for you, right? Because you know that they know, I'm sorry, that you would do the same for them. But in leadership, the, the, the truth is you need to have the ability to take on difficult conversations and you need to be able to address things head on. Um, and, I, and I think I've always just been the type of person that um, while I do appreciate the opportunity to sit down with people in a formal environment for perhaps a performance review, um, I always think that if, if the ongoing communication and the ongoing management isn't on a daily basis, especially in the day camp environment, which is really fast paced and, and, and fluid, um, I just think you're missing out on an opportunity to both catch staff members doing some things that are really, really good, um, but also address things in the moment that need to be addressed. And I think that if you end up just saving the great feedback with some of the corrective feedback, I think the great feedback always gets lost. And I think people just naturally will have, um, have the tendency to concentrate on, on some of the negatives that perhaps you brought up. So you talk about relationship-based leadership. Um, I, I think it's been an intentional approach mm-hmm. that, that, um, because it requires um, time, it requires planning. You know, how do you specifically make yourself available throughout uh, the year, throughout the day to, um, you know, to proactively set up calls with your leadership staff to, um, to learn about them and their interests outside of, of camp. So you have the ability to, um, you know, to kind of use that, not, not strategically, but just as it relates to leverage that, that we have a relationship. I truly do care about you. Uh, and it's for that reason that, that I think this might need to either change or that we can rework this to, to, you know, to kind of be better collectively. Um, and I just think that, that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, people these days that, um, are being managed and I could even think to myself, so I shouldn't even say these days. Um, the question is how, how would you like to be managed? And the truth is I would like to be managed when I'm an, you know, I'm an employee currently. Um, and especially when I was a, a, you know, 17 to 22 year old, which is the demographic of a lot of our staff. I would want somebody to treat me with respect, somebody that I know cares about me, um, somebody that I know would would do uh, everything in his or her powers to see me succeed and provide the tools for me to do so. And so if if that's how I feel, and my guess is that's how a lot of other people feel, then I think it would be foolish not not now that I'm in a, a, a position to manage people to not follow through on, on, on that exact mm-hmm. path. Um, and I, I, I've just found, and, and I've, I've played for coaches that have uh, leveraged the, you know, we call power-based leadership. If you don't do this, you will, you know, not play or you'll have to run uh, laps. And I think to a point in a vacuum and in specific circumstances, it can be leveraged both in sports and, and, and life and um, in the workplace. But I think as a long-term strategy in terms of developing, you want to go back to the word culture um, and buy-in and growth I think it is a uh, I think it is a band aid um, that might stop the bleeding, 
temporarily, but um, but it, but is not a long term solution. So yeah, so it's power based leadership, which is what you just described, and then incentive based leadership, which is you know I'll give you a, a bonus or you pay. You're getting paid to work, so that's a part of it. But then also it's kind of the you know carrot, right? If you do this, then I will give you a bonus or something like that. And number one that there's enough research that that doesn't work for so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, there was one book I read, I can't remember the name of it right now, it was years ago, but it says everybody has a number. Even from, like you're working with a summer job for kids, but even as a salary, everyone has a number that would make them abundantly happy. And everybody's number is different, right? Maybe maybe your number genuinely is a million dollars a year. Maybe your number genuinely is $30,000 a year, depending on where you live. Maybe it's 75, who knows? And But once you hit that number, and a lot of people don't know it, but you do the self-reflection and know that number, beyond that is not an incentive for you. It doesn't mean anything to you. Um, my wife, you know Danielle, she I don't know what hers is, but I'm willing to bet it's what she's currently making because her place of work has even said, oh, would you be interested in you know, for going further? And she wants to go do child counseling, which is going to be a, a, a dock and pay. She's going to lose money and be happier. Not that she doesn't love what she's currently doing, but that's her passion. And so there's so many moments where incentive-based leadership doesn't work. I loved the, when you guys talked about relationship-based leadership of just this concept of, you know, it's not about so that you perform better. It's not about so that I get X out of you. It is because this is the way, like you said, this is how I want to be led. And so it'd be hypocritical not to lead others in that same way. And it just becomes the reason you do things. We talk about culture a lot with teams and with athletic teams. You know, the best coaches, Coach K has written about this in his books. He doesn't do this stuff so that they'll win a championship at the end of the year. He does this stuff because it's just how he lives this life. It's how he shows up. It's built this Duke brotherhood that genuinely, even in today's era, if you only play for Duke for one year, uh, you, you feel a part of this family. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, video that went viral about Zion Williamson talking about how he was going to stay at Duke for a second year. Did you see this? Of course. Yeah. His 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 young brain was genuinely his young brain was genuinely saying, "I want to go back to Duke." I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, he says, Co- Coach K essentially yeah. made him declare for the draft. Yeah, because, because that was the right thing for him in his do. best interest. Exactly. And, you, and for Coach K's best interest, it's absolutely to have Zion Williamson come back and play another year. Exactly. And but that's that's just the epitome of relationship based leadership. Yeah, t- and but okay. to but to your point though, and, and and believe me, I'm 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 not trying to compare Hampton Country and, and our culture to Duke in the slightest. But I will say that um, I, I knew that close to 10 years later, that w- when uh, when I had emailed you after seeing um, what you were doing, and, and congrats, of course, on all that. So excited for Thank you. you. Um, and I, I saw your 50 cups of, of coffee, coffee uh, TEDx talk, and I reached out to you. 10 years had passed, but because we had worked together at Hampton Country Day Camp, I kind of knew that we still had that that bond. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same reason where, um, you know, Dr. Mazza, who, who of course is is going on to doing some some great things both in his field and, and, and in training. It's the same reason that, um, you know, when, when Steve and I, or Dr. Mazza and I reconnected mm-hmm. so many years later, it, it felt very natural. And, um, and I think that, that, that once again, to just kind of go back to the point that I don't think that happens by accident. And this is not not to pat us on the back at Hampton Country because there's tons of organizations that do it way better than we do. And, 
but um, but I think that there are a lot of organizations and perhaps you know schools and and companies that just miss out on that, and I think it's because they miss the first step, mm-hmm. and that and that is we need to sit down and we need to figure out who we want to be and how do we get there. And I think once that framework is in place, you now have the ability to kind of navigate you know, where you go from there, but, but, but you don't waver on, on, on those pillars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not like everybody over the last, you know, 10, 11 years at Hampton country has bought into, you know, to kind of use a sports from our system or our process. That's not to say that, um, at all, but for the most part, um, because we do feel so strongly in, in developing such a positive culture, a fun working environment, a very honest and trustworthy place to work, um, I think it's the reason that, that, that we've been, you know, very successful to date. It's, it's, it's the reason why so many people, so many staff members look forward to coming back year in and, uh, and year out. And to your point about, you know, compensation, I could promise you working, working at a day camp world in the summertime, it, it, there are, there are a lot more lucrative opportunities out there, specifically out in East Hampton, yeah, for New sure. York. Yeah. Um, especially so, when you add up the hourly, like it, if you, as a kid, you look at how much like the paycheck is and you're like, that sounds awesome. And then you look at the hourly rate. I'm like, we're putting in, we're putting in the work. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if you work the same number of hours folding beach towels at a beach club, you know, you could make astronomically more yeah. money as crazy as it sounds. But um, but for a lot of the people, and we'll call them the the, the right people for for Hampton Country, um, it's because they value the opportunity to work in that type of environment, and uh, and I'm sure there is a number if they could make you know fifteen thousand dollars for the summer working at a beach club, perhaps that's the number that says, hey, as much fun as working at camp would be, it would be almost imprudent for me not to take this opportunity. Yeah. I got student loans and, maybe, and, and all and, this and stuff. And it's but, not like good riddance to them, but again, they're maybe they're not in the right. So one of the one of the guys on the panel yesterday said they changed their policy in terms of being able to go out or whatever it is for the counselors on their day off, and they had a, a couple, maybe it was three counselors who didn't return because of that policy. And I loved his point. He goes, "Well, then we learned why they're here." They're right. not here again. Not bad people, but they're not here for the kids and for the camp experience. And absolutely, in the Hamptons, if you are if you are out there working the summer to make the money, uh, then you're not. Then 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 yeah, let the let the more lucrative job take it for you. Exactly. Um, I'll I'll speak to this. You mentioned the relationships. You reaching out after however many years since we last talked. Um, I still keep in touch with. So Steve and I have connected every now and again, and we were planning to room together at this conference. He wasn't able to make it out, but even that just we were excited to connect and see each other. And it's probably been 10 years since we've seen each other in person. Um, Laura Palumbo mm-hmm. was at our wedding and we're going to be at her wedding. And our relationship with her was purely working through summer camp. Uh, I've kept in touch with Wimmer uh, and what he's doing, Mike Wimmer. And it's amazing to me because I've had, you know, so many teams and organizations I've been a part of as a kid, as a working, odd jobs, you name it. And, and the, if I can name all these people that I'm still connected to from, from two summers of summer camp. And it's because of that culture that you all created and, and you led by example. And, and when the relationship is there, you're right. You, you reach out and people respond to it. That is so much of the message of 50 cups is that I always say it's not about networking because I never want people to look at it and say, 
Okay, because I've gotten this question before of, hey, I did the 50 cups and nothing happened. And it's like, well, what are you looking to have happen? Right. Because uh, some relationships might take 10 years for something to quote unquote happen. The point is not to be looking for the end result. The point is to enjoy the journey, enjoy the process, be intentional about simply connecting with people as human beings. Right, right. And and to your point, it's funny that you say that because I'm sure that there are people who, who attended the relationship-based leadership session yesterday and will spend 15 minutes on the phone. You know, they'll be inspired to now be proactive and they'll spend 15 minutes on the phone with one of their division leaders or leadership staff members at their respective programs. And then in the summertime, they'll, uh, they'll believe that that 15 minutes would then allow them to have a difficult conversation that that it doesn't it doesn't connect like that that's not the point there's no there's no short term solution for a for a long term process right um, and it is funny that that uh, you got that question about the fifty cups like yeah, I think you missed I think that, I haven't that guy got, missed I used, the point yeah, yeah I used to get it the TEDx talk was 2016 and I used to get that a lot and I don't anymore because I've I've gotten better at explaining it and nuancing it I think this podcast has helped uh, to your point I'll never forget this and this is um, this is to the point of relationship-based leadership because it's not always it's not always great. There are some challenges. Um, I don't know if you remember this. I remember this. There was a one time during camp, uh, I had a break in the action, and I had always wanted to climb that rock wall. And we're not supposed to, but I really wanted to climb the rock wall. And so I go over, and I forget who was running it at the time, but I was like, hey, like I don't want to get you in trouble. Like Just look the other way. I want to <laughs> climb the rock wall. And so she's like, whatever. I don't care. So I climb the rock wall. Sure enough, it breaks. Like The, the, the thing on it broke and and i didn't want her to get into so so i think uh i i went to you and was like i tried to get away with it i was like hey dave the rock wall broke and you're like <laughs> okay cool you took care of it first you're like okay great like well, boom 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 and then you're like so uh why are you telling me this <laughs> and and i explained what i did and you essentially did nothing you your response was should, we shouldn't be climbing the rock wall shouldn't we? i was like nope and you're like okay great and that was the end of it. And I still remember it to this day because I felt bad about it, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't waiting. And I've had, I've had power-based leaders where uh, I don't mind getting yelled at. I've had coaches that are power-based leaders, and it doesn't bother me to the point where if I thought to myself, you know what, if I climb it again, I'm just going to yell at it again. I don't care. And I've met people that have that sense of like, fine, yell at me again and we'll get over it. Yeah, but the sense of disappointing someone that I care about and someone whose opinion I care about, that was enough for me to remember that moment 10 years later. <laughs> it's, it's funny that, that you bring that up. I, I've been listening to, to your podcast um, and, and I love it. And I, uh, I remember you referencing um, you know, a similar conversation through coaching that... Um, you know, some coaches, when a when when a, a kid or even you know up to the professional athlete ranks, um, they make they make an error in baseball or they throw a turnover in in, in basketball. Um, their coach chews them out from the sidelines. Yeah, and I've I've just never been one. And once again, there's super successful coaches that have employed this approach to managing their teams. Um, so obviously it works for some. If I guess if you define works as as you know wins success. and losses, yeah. But it, it it does kind of blow my mind that um, that 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 people think that that is the most constructive way to not have that happen again. So so 
you know, Dean Smith, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but, but I do love his approach on, on, on mistakes. And um, when you make a mistake, his thought was always you, you acknowledge it, you learn from it, you forget it, and you don't make it again. And, you know, nowhere in there was I chew you out for it mm-hmm. because that, that player knew they made a mistake. I used to play point guard um, growing up, and there was a coach probably going way back when to, to my middle school days that, um, you know, if I turn the ball over, go crazy on the sidelines, right? And so that didn't make me feel any better. That didn't instill any more confidence in me that the next time I was taking the ball up, that I was going to throw the ball out one more time, right? I actually played more nervous knowing that the consequence for for turning the ball over was going to be that, Um, as opposed to pulling me over from the side as a kid who was just still learning how to play basketball Mm -hmm. and telling me, hey, listen, you turned the ball over because you took the wrong angle on, on that pass, right? You put way too much space between you and the shooting guard. Mm-hmm. Um, cause if he told me that I wouldn't have made the same mistake twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from a management standpoint, kind of bringing this full circle to, to our conversation with you on the Rockwell, which I do have some vague memories of, <laughs> I mean, what would have, what, what would have been the point to, to, to kind of undress you at that point yeah. and say, what the hell were you thinking? Climbing the wall, the wall was already climbed right? and the wall broke, right? So the wall needed to be fixed, and you knew that you shouldn't have done it and won't do it again. So let's say, okay, we're on the same page. We're not going to do that again. You do a great job. We have this relationship that you can come to me and talk to me and tell me honestly that that happened. Okay, great. And I know that it's never going to happen again. Um, And my guess is if you see another person on the rock wall, you know, not being a director yourself at the time, that shouldn't be climbing the rock wall, you're probably going to be proactive and saying, hey, 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 listen, Probably not a good idea to be on the rock wall yeah, right now. I think that's accurate. I can't I don't remember specifics, but I do remember from that point on appreciating the rules. <laughs> right? Like and my wife will be the first to say I don't care about the rules. Like I cuz I like I don't not care, but there's certain things where I'm like, "Ah, that's not a big deal." And then in that moment it was like, oh, "Okay, this is why a 17-year-old shouldn't be climbing a rock wall that was built for a kids camp." Right? <laughs> like that's probably why I broke it. And uh but you have a it just uh it, it carries over and and there was there's like you said, there's nothing to be gained from, you know. I probably you're right. I I in the story, I went and told you about it. And, and taking the high road so the person who runs the rock crawl doesn't get in trouble. If you were the type of coach or leader who would have chewed me out in that moment, 100% I'd have been like, just tell them it's broke. I don't want any part of this, right? right? You don't want to get in trouble either. Let's not tell the truth because you want to avoid, you're trying to avoid the consequence. If the consequence is simply a you feeling disappointed in the relationship, I think people are much more likely to be upfront and honest with it, so... Cool. I do want to get it. I think this is relevant to how much. Are you good? Perfect. Time-wise? Okay. Because um, I wanted to filter this into uh, what you're doing with Fast and, and talk a little bit about that. And and I loved – yesterday you and I literally grabbed a coffee and you told me how that came about. And I think that would be really cool to even just tell that story. You walking around camp and where the idea for Fast Athletics came. Yeah, sure. So, so – um Without, without, without getting too deep from a societal approach, there have been over the last you know, 10 plus years a number of things going on um, societally that, that brought us to where we are today. But 
just talking in, in, in on a macro sense. So you've got a few things going on with with youth as it relates to to sports. Um, number one, kids, and this is not something that that uh, is going to be mind blowing to many people, are are on their screens at an alarming rate. That plays a role into why childhood obesity is is a big time problem right now. And then you compound that with um, youth sports specialization that is happening at a very young age uh, in a very competitive forum. And you stir that up into a pot and, and you start to get into a situation where youth sports has, has, has started to lose a little bit of its, of its innocent identity, um, where kids perhaps are, are, are not playing as many sports for as long um, and, and believe me, when we started FAST, FAST stands for Fitness and Athletic Skills Training, the idea was not to solve a societal problem. It was to provide, um, you know, programs and opportunities for, for children. And I'll get into that in, 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 a, in a really positive and fun athletic world. Um, but yeah, back in 2014, 2015, I was, I was walking around um, Hampton Country Day Camp just as I, as I kind of normally do, you know my style, I try to be very present and, and uh, interactive with the kids and the counselors. And um, I started to pick up on, on some really what, I, what I'll call weird trends where you'd have um, campers who were really, really good at basketball. And then I would see them at soccer and they'd be sitting out of soccer. And I would say to them, um, you know, hey, hey why, why are you sitting out? And they would say, oh, I don't like soccer. And when you're working with kids, when they say, I don't like something, it typically means I don't have the confidence to play it, or I'm not good, or I don't think I'm good, or I'm not as good as my friends, or my friends might make fun of me if I'm not as good, or I make a mistake. That's, that's essentially what they're saying. Um, so it didn't really make sense that at the age of like five, six, seven, when, when really, there's really no good reason why you'd be a very good basketball player and not a good soccer player. It's just total athletic development at, at that age. Um, or I'd be walking around, I'd, I'd be throwing the ball around on the baseball field with five and six-year-olds, and, and, and way too many of them were having a very difficult time catching, and it didn't seem like they ever learned the, the pretty easy fundamentals of even how to catch, and they were trying to clap the ball, like uh, we call it, like clapping like an alligator, um, as opposed to kind of waiting for the ball to come to them. Um, and at the same time, so while this is all going on, I was getting a ton of requests from parents of, of five, six, seven-year-olds that they wanted their, um, I oversee mostly the boys' side in camp, so I'll just speak to the boys, the boys to just be playing in the morning three hours of baseball or three hours of soccer, three hours of basketball. Um, and it just didn't make sense from an athletic development approach, but I actually just didn't believe that it was the right thing for Hampton Country to offer at that age. But I didn't have, and I was telling you this yesterday, I, I didn't have the why. I knew that I wanted to say, I don't think it's the right reason, but I had no reason, um, or I had, I had no real evidence to leverage to speak intelligently to the parents if they said, well, why? So I started to pour into, um, you know, just Googling things, like youth athletic development, best way to develop athletes, single sports specialization. And I landed on um, a, uh, a not-so-hidden um, buzzword now that's, you know, long-term athletic development, which a lot of countries at the time were ahead of, of 
the United States and and you know since I think the the U.S. lax organization has has taken a a pretty um, U.S. You know, lacrosse has done pretty good. U.S. Exactly. hockey has it, actually been really the leader uh, from like a governing body standpoint of embracing it and. 100%. With U.S. hockey, the NHL has been a great partner for them to say, this is important and this is how we're doing it. I think U.S. lacrosse is putting the right information out there. Now we need the lacrosse community to embrace it, which we don't really have. There's there's two professional – three if you count the indoor league and college is popular, but there's no NHL to – verify it and say right. this is what we're promoting so it's getting there but there's still buying that yeah and it's important to have have you know the 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 premier brand names you know the, oh it's the huge NHL because in the end to, of the day i always say this when i talk to lacrosse communities because that's the world i'm in and i coach is we can at the bottom talk all we want about youth development and once that kid reaches 10 11 12 13 and the kid is talking about wanting to play at the highest level now all of a sudden you're not listening to your youth coach anymore, unless the relationship is there. You're looking to say, what are the college coaches saying? What is what is Coach Danowski saying? What is Coach Desco saying? What is Petromala saying? And if they're saying something different than your youth coach, I always ask parents, who do you think your kid's going to listen to? Right. They're not even going to listen to you as a parent anymore. Right. 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 Even brain development. After a certain age, you stop caring what your parents think. You care about your peers and, and quite frankly, uh, the big brother, the, the college player. Right. And so it needs to, to seep into that. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so I started reading all about it, and I love the approach. And, and um, you know, we could spend a full hour talking about long-term athletic development. But, I but, thought of that yesterday. Yeah. I was like, do I change did, the whole idea for the podcast? That, that'll be pod, pod part, <laughs> part two. two. Yeah. But, um, you know, essentially – what it is is it, is it creates um, steps that athletic development, overall athleticism, is at the foundation of all sports movements. And if that's the case, and if you if you acknowledge that um, as truth, then everything that you do from the age of let's say two, in a structured sense, all the way up should follow that progression. And, and what I mean by that is that at the age of, you know, three, four, and five, perhaps kids should not be playing nine months of, of soccer. And as counterintuitive as it, as it may sound, perhaps playing three months of soccer, three months of basketball, three months of baseball might make them a much better soccer player mm-hmm. down the line. So it's a long-term plan to develop the best athletes. And tying this back in, into FAST the idea was after after doing some research is you know we really didn't find um, my my partner is a guy by the name of Jason Mercado um, and he actually is a director of one of the TLC family of camps camp called North Shore Day Camp he wrestled at at Brown um, and so he has that that you know collegiate perspective but um, but when it came to fast what we wanted to do is develop with a very camp approach. So with music and drill-based games and challenges and contests, something that, quote-unquote, tricked kids into receiving instruction. So they didn't think that they were going to baseball practice or soccer practice or, or lacrosse practice. They were going a fast. Fast was a program um, where every session they would be participating in essentially a rotation of multi-sport skill development some of them, some of the drills and skills that we would do would actually look like 
real things. So, you know, dribbling a basketball, for instance, is, is, a, is a foundational skill for basketball. And you could teach a, a three-year-old how to do it by first, you know, bouncing the ball and catching the ball and then bouncing the ball and catching the ball. We all know that would be a double dribble, but what you're doing is you're developing the hand-eye coordination that down the line will then turn into a one-handed dribble, crossover dribble through the legs, whatever you want to do. But we were also doing things that looked absolutely nothing like playing sports. So we had to do a little bit of parent education here. And we have things like um, you know, keeping a balloon up at the age of two, three, and four. And parents are looking at us at first like we're crazy. Yeah. Their kids are having an absolute blast because we have music going on in the studio and we've got you know, 10, 12, three, and four-year-olds trying to keep up a balloon first with their hand. Then we give them a, a cut-off pool noodle that mimics a bat mm-hmm. or a tennis racket. And all we're doing is laying the foundation for future hand-eye coordination that will be required in a variety of sports, whether it's baseball. And we'll start to mimic the sports-specific movements but the kids are having a blast and they're learning things without realizing that they're learning them so kids whereas they might give parents um, a bit of pushback when they're going to practice and whether this is the best athletes or perhaps kids who, who just have not developed those skills it seems like everybody who has participated in a fast class um, and I hope this doesn't come off as a convenient sales pitch enjoys the class because fun is at the forefront of what we're doing. Because if you don't develop a love for physical activity, a love for all sports, a love for participation, then no matter how good you are at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you're either going to be burnt out a little bit if you're just playing that sport for so long, or you're going to miss out on on the fundamentals that that really there are tiered checkpoints throughout that throughout mm. a, a, you know a, a child's development that if you don't learn these things by three four five six having nothing to do with baseball or basketball or, or hockey or a specific sport it's very difficult to recoup those those skills those foundational skills down the line yeah. and we've gotten a pretty amazing response we, we opened up our, our first studio in in fall 2018 1500 square feet of turf so not an enormous size um, we cap classes mostly at, at 15 have a really really high coach to athlete ratio so we have the ability to kind of divide and conquer the room and go through the station rotations and we have obstacle courses and everything that you could imagine that a kid loves um, and it picked up so quickly that we would have families from from other adjacent towns that would be joining the class so we had the opportunity then to then put our second location in a in, in a great town called Port Washington on Long Island and we're in the process of of trying to build a, a third location as we speak um and and the idea really is to put the framework in place with a curriculum that we know at this point is is a proven model kids love participating Mm -hmm. in multi-sport skill development that sometimes feels and looks like sports, but many times feels like phys ed games, summer camp games. Um, and, uh, and if the, and if that catches on, right, not, not like we're going to change any societal trend anytime soon, but if you can at least change a handful of young athletes, and, and their interest in sports and their ability to get better at a young age, um, then I think we've done, our, then we've done our job. And if we can continue to grow and we can continue to reach more communities and, and more kids, that's the plan. But, but for right now, we're super proud of um, you know, kind of where we are. Yeah, and I think my ex to grind with, with, the, with you said you want to get it to societal. And I'm not either, but um, what, how I got into LTAD was 
you mentioned the athletic development side of things and I've started to read that research and it's awesome. And because of it, I'm now, that's why I'm coaching middle school. That's why I'm coaching a club team. That's like fifth and sixth graders, um, as just because I want to, but I got into this because in working with college athletes and I saw this more and more, the more elite they were, the highest level teams, the top 10, you know, power five conference teams, they would start to talk about how they don't have fun with their sport anymore. They weren't complaining. They weren't griping. It was a reality. Like I was the the idiot in the room for being surprised by that because they were like, yeah, no, this isn't like fun anymore, but we're doing this because we're on scholarship. We want to win a championship. Like they were invested in the championship, but the concept of fun had been removed from it. And just about a month ago, I was doing a session with a team now, a soccer team that I've done maybe six sessions with at this point. And they were doing an activity where you're just turning and talking with someone. Uh, I say, what's working for you? What's not working for you? And you think about it. And one player said she's a senior and she's good enough to potentially play professional soccer when she graduates. And so her friend was like, oh, like, are you going to, you know, enter your name in the draft? Are you going to go after it? Are you going to try to play overseas? And she goes, I don't even want a job. Like, I am so she said this phrase. She goes, I am so burned out by just getting up early, doing the grind, doing the work, uh, going like she wants the gap year after college because she's just so burned from, you know, at this level playing elite level soccer, probably since she was in third grade, if not younger. Right. And so she's, so even take away for me, take away athlete development, take away fun for a three or four or five year old. Let's start to look at the human beings that we are now raising to be adults. And we are putting them through such a system that they don't even want to be adults come graduating college. And I'm not saying they're mature. I'm not talking about millennials or Gen Z. I'm talking about my microcosm of college athletes that I work with that we look at as peak performers that are tired of being peak performers because right. we have just drilled it into them. Yes. Yeah, the, the problem, the problem really started, uh, and you hate to pin all the blame on, on, you know, one of the greatest golf players, if not the best Tiger Woods, <laughs> Tiger Woods. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 20 true. or so years ago when, you know, when, when, um, you know, he, he started winning almost every tournament possible. Um, you know, his story came out. Of course, he was a you know a three year old, I think, on whatever mm-hmm. you know Tonight Show. You know, making putts or or, or swinging his driver, and uh, and people heard his story. And from a parental perspective, so now I'm you know I'm a, I'm a dad of two young girls, five and three, and of course, like every other parent, all you want is the best for your kids. A lot of parents saw Earl Woods commitment to making his son at the time the best golfer ever and and what that looked like and how that has kind of um transitioned into single sport specialization and and there's a ton of articles on that and you hate to put it on tiger woods he was three he didn't it wasn't his fault and it's not Earl, and, and, and he's a success story but for every you know tiger woods people miss out on you know you could start rattling rattling off millions lebron james Mm -hmm was was a two sport athlete and and I don't think if if um LeBron James and this he's only been playing you know 17 years in the league so you know it's called 21 years back when if you count high school mm-hmm. I don't think if LeBron James or the future LeBron James is in 8th grade right now he's going to be allowed to play high school football. Yeah, well we it's like the correlation causation idea it does correlation right. equal causation. You know, we look at Tiger Woods' story and say, "Okay, so that's what I need to do to be Tiger Woods." Right. We don't get to know would that have happened anyways? 
Right. You know, would he have become, if he put in that purposeful practice later in life, would that have occurred? We don't know. Also, you're right about LeBron James or even uh, at Kobe Bryant's memorial. I love the story Michael Jordan told. And he wasn't trying to make some grand statement about multi-sport athletes. But mm-hmm. he said, Kobe texted me and said, what, what were you doing at 12 years old? So that he could do it with his daughters. And Michael Jordan's response was, I was playing baseball. Right. I was thinking about baseball. Right. And that, quite frankly, never left. He always wanted to play baseball. Harry Swain, my first guest on this podcast, his first sport was figure skating. And he loved it. He didn't quit until he got made fun of for it. And as a little kid... That was the end of it. But he said prior to us hitting record, and I mentioned this towards the end of his episode, he said he never really liked football. He was just really good at it. Right. And so became a 19-year player in the NFL. So, yeah, there's a lot we can do with that. Um, I want to do this because we uh, the, the next speaker at this conference is Carly Lloyd. I want to make sure we go see her. Definitely. Um, uh, and the last question that I ask on the podcast, I've started doing this, is do you have a 50 cups of coffee story? Now, for example, quite frankly, uh, you know, Jay Jacobs is a great 50 cups of coffee story for you in terms of connecting with him, leading to this job after college. But even since then, in terms of just you are a relationship-based leader, you do connect with so many people. Um, is there? It doesn't have to be a phenomenal story, but is there a story that in, in encouraging people to take on this mentality of simply sitting down and grabbing coffee with people, connecting with them, um, um, do you have a story that, that lends itself to that? That because of that connection, it led to something for you. Yeah, so so I, I, I had the opportunity uh, about two months ago. I got I got introduced and connected to um, you know a, a, an athlete that that I grew up really from a from a point guard sense, you know, almost worshiping his game, and 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 um, and that was Steve Nash. Steve. Mm-hmm. In addition to being insanely successful, as we all know, as a as a Hall of Fame basketball player, um, is really passionate about a lot of the things that that we've spoken about: multi sport skill development and long term athletic development. He was an amazing soccer player growing up in uh, in Canada, and I think you know the you know the legend goes he could have easily played soccer professionally and and probably have been just as good he's currently um, an owner right of a professional soccer program yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah ownership yeah so i i had the opportunity um to connect with him over the phone so we didn't actually sit down and, and have a cup of coffee that that would have been a lot of fun but the idea that that someone at his level who's been so successful in in his specific craft is also equally committed to and believes so strongly in the long-term athletic development model. And, and we had a chance to kind of go through it. Um, and he has some amazing ideas. Well, wasn't of his he, own. he was picking your brain in the conversation, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, to a degree, like, you know, if, if, uh, if I think you obviously probably learned a lot from Steve as well, I know you're not trying to position yourself in this to say he was calling to talk to you, but I think when you first told me this story, uh, and I'll, I'll let you finish. I don't want to cut you off in the story, but um, we talked about this yesterday. And I've listened to Steve Nash on a couple of podcasts. Paul Rabel's former Suiting Up podcast. He doesn't do it anymore. But he had that. And I was amazed because I was listening to it to learn about Steve Nash. And what I was learning is Steve Nash was equally as interested in what Paul Rabel had to talk about and share. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've come to appreciate just know, hearing stories about him, even as a position coach now in the NBA, I think that's how he is. He is hungry 
for growth. He's hungry to learn. He's hungry to listen. And it struck me when you said you connected with him on this idea because I know the conversation was two-way. Mm-hmm. You're learning from him. He's learning from you. And, and it, to think that a guy at his level is still re- – it goes back to the Kobe Bryant story, one of the greatest players of all time. And now we're hearing all these stories of how many people he reached out to to say, I want to know from you – what do I need to teach my daughters about basketball? And at some level, what does Kobe Bryant need to have to learn right. when it comes to coaching and basketball? So I cut you off, but I, I want to give you the credit. Like, yeah, I think it was a two-way conversation, which is a phenomenal lesson that if a guy like Steve Nash has more to learn about athlete development, then, then what a like, – not to say none of us have any excuses, but like, what is my reason for not right, being right, open right, to a right, conversation? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling over here because it's uh, – yeah, it's almost ridiculous to think that I'd, I'd be able to provide even the smallest nugget of information yeah. as it relates yeah. to athletic development to him. But but it was inspiring in the sense that, that you know, just he believes in, in FAST and what we do um, and in summer camps and the work that we do in terms of community building and, and, and working with young kids. Um, so, of course, you know, once again, we didn't we didn't get a chance to to kind of share a cup of coffee together, but just to have a chance to, um, and I'm really really thankful for the for the opportunity to kind of pick his brain. And of course, it was it was you know it was a game of ping pong. We were we were going back and forth, but just to um, to hear that that someone who is uh, is as accomplished as as Steve believes in our mission. Um, you know, that's something that'll keep you going for, mm-hmm. for a long time. You don't, mm-hmm. if you didn't, if you didn't have uh, enough motivation to make it happen, uh, you know, that, that, that'll push you over the edge for sure. Yeah, that it is funny, especially with long-term athlete development, the way you're doing things is different. When I started implementing with the teams I coach, I started to appreciate how different, and it's the same with the work I do when we come in and we're implementing a relationship-based culture with coaches that maybe we get the call when things aren't going well, Right. We're a toxic culture. Things are bad. Coach calls us. You got to work with our team. And not every coach is the problem, but sometimes they are. Sometimes you're reading into it and you, 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 we have the interviews, we have the conversations, and we realize the coach is the one we need to convince about this coaching from the heart side of things. And what tipped the scale for me from a confidence perspective was Anson Dorrance, who's the UNC women's soccer coach, got a hold of our book. I say he got a hold of our books. We mailed them to him. Um, but, he, but he read them. Somehow. Yeah, somehow somehow stumbled upon them. Um, and we mailed them to a lot of coaches. And he read them and started texting me via that. When I was down working with uh, UNC Volleyball, I met up with Anson Dorrance for about an hour or two hours. And uh, he just loved the work we're doing, loved the concept, loved the ideas, was excited to talk with Joe Segula after we worked with the volleyball team. And I called Ryan after that and said, we, we got all the, we got all the motivation, encouragement, whatever we need. If Anson Dorrance is saying, this is the way to coach that gives me fuel to look at another coach and not say, listen to what I have to say, but if they're pushing back on it, it's like, okay, well, Anson Dorans signed off on this, so right, so, right, right, right. so maybe that lends some credibility. And so for Steve Nash to be an individual that says this is good stuff, that's definitely huge because you're going to get parents who say, "Well, is this the best way to help my kid?" And it's like, according to Steve Nash, it is. Right. So right, right, so right. that that's helpful. For if you him. if you want your 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 son or daughter to be a future you know uh, Hall of Famer, two time yeah. MVP, and one of the greatest point guards in the history of NBA, yeah, yeah, yeah. sign up for fast. It's, it's, it's a way a, to do it. Exactly. <laughs> it's a pretty good. It's a pretty good promo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That'll well, be awesome. our tagline. Uh, we are running out of time. Is there anything you want to make sure you say before we sign off? No. the o- The only thing I will say, Bobby, is is I I, I really am so proud. 
of, uh, of what you're doing. Um, and once again, I hope it doesn't sound too convenient being on your pod and, and uh, saying this to you, but um, you know, knowing you as I did nine, 10 years ago, I always knew that you were, um, or you have this contagiously positive, awesome personality. And I almost think that what you're doing right now is, is the perfect forum because you are infecting in a good way, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people at the same time. And, and uh, you know, you gave, um, you know, a, a lecture, I'll call it, if you will, a session this morning. And, uh, and as a first-time speaker, the room was filled, which is awesome. And I think that's a testament to, to perhaps even how you framed the session. And then to see you just kill it up there and have so many people connected to something that they are just hearing for the first time and then to watch them come up to you after the session... Um, that selfishly was actually a really, really good feeling. So, um, so I, I just wish you the best of luck. I, I have a feeling that, um, you know, I'm not sure when you're going to post the pod. So what number I am in the, let's say I'm yeah. number 10. I have a feeling that, that very quickly in, in some short order, you're going to be interviewing some people that are a lot more interesting and a lot more powerful <laughs> than myself. So I'm glad I snuck into this podcast when uh, when you were still trying to figure things out from a, from a podcast. Point Not at me, all, yeah. I, I, uh, Dave. I appreciate I appreciate <laughs> you sharing that. I appreciate your mentorship in, in my world and my life. I think uh, you know as I as I shared in the workshop, I signed up to work at camp because. I wanted a more fun summer experience, purely. I was like, this sounds fun. Uh, my wife, at the, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now was had worked it for a couple of years. And I, I think the impact that camp has had on my life from working it for two summers is because of you and your leadership oh, you. and, and how you show up for your staff and, and what you've kind of touched on in here. I, I think we could do, you know, you laughed beforehand and said, I don't know if I can talk for, for as long as we need to for this podcast. I think we could because you have a lot of wisdom to share about how to connect and lead people. I appreciate you connecting me here. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you reminding me about it, nudging me to do it, inviting me to speak at Hampton Country Day Camp. And uh, I just uh, am great. Like literally, you know this is this this industry is relationships you know the internet has my youtube videos this podcast is out there uh, we've got our website and and the difference in so much of this is how you connect with people we're pitching that we come in and get people to connect and so it, it takes someone like you to look at your colleagues and say trust me on this and and that has been our biggest our biggest marketing really has been our sales has been looking at people that know us and saying can you tell your colleagues to trust you and and we will serve you well so i'm glad i was happy to see you you were front row front row which is usually not my style yeah Yeah, i'm not usually a front row guy spent (laughs) the better part of high school at in in the back row but uh but i felt good knowing that i think i think we did do well i'll i'll confidently speak to speak to the the, session the only credit that that i will ever take is is just opening the door a yeah. little bit for you, which yeah. is, and that's like you said, the connections um, and the relationships. But I promise you, after seeing what you did at Hampton Country Day Camps, you know, orientation and and, and how well received you were, and then this morning, uh, I mean, the door can be open, but you, you could either you know walk slowly or, or literally run through the door, and you have run through that door, and um, they're going to need to triple your room size next year, and <laughs> and shortly thereafter, I think you're going to be on on many big stages. So awesome. I, I look forward to that. Don't forget the small people in your in your life of when you're the next. Of course not. Stop being Tony small Robbins, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thanks for doing this. You got it, Bobby. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. We are in the home stretch of season one. Only a handful of episodes left before we take our holiday break. We are being listened to in almost every state in the U.S. and nine countries, and we are approaching 10,000 downloads. I am so appreciative of the support and excitement in season one. And if you would like to help us continue to grow, hit that 10,000 download mark. Please, 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 please take a minute to subscribe wherever you are listening, rate the show and leave a short review. This is how podcasts grow. It is how you can help us. It would mean the world to me. I read every review that comes through. I pay attention to every rating that we have and, and I appreciate every subscriber. So please subscribe leave a rating for the show and leave a review. This would be hugely helpful for us. As always, our theme music and art is by Matisse Soy. Until next time, stay connected.